0: Welcome to Episode 6 of the Dorothy L. Sayers Podcast Season 2. Today, our topic is Heaven. I was going to name this episode Heaven and Hell, but it turns out there's enough to say about Heaven to keep us going. Yet there is a subscript. Yes, we're talking about Heaven, but we'll talk about it through the same lens that Sayers described it, the lens of Dante. I don't know if that image works so well, the lens of Dante, but so don't dwell on it. But let's get started and see what we can find. Try to put yourself in this scene. The air is still and calm, and we're looking at something like water. Then we realize that there are faces in the water looking back at us. They're faint, like a pearl on a pale background. And we turn around to see who's behind us causing the reflection, but it's not a reflection. So we look at our guide, who says, it's okay, go ahead and talk to them. We turn back to the water, and the person we end up addressing is named Picarda. And on earth, she was a nun, and happy in that life but her brother forced her out of the convent and into a marriage that she didn't want, a political marriage. When we ask her why she is here and not higher up in other spheres, she says that the question doesn't even make sense. She is where God wants her to be, and his will is her peace. She has no other desire. This is from Canto 3 of Dante's Paradise. Dante and his guide Beatrice are in the first sphere of heaven in which they meet the redeemed souls who have nevertheless broken vows. Picarda Though she was forced into marriage, nevertheless broke her vow to the Lord, and so is in this sphere. By the way, this apparent injustice is questioned by Dante. Beatrice gives a really thoughtful answer, and we'll return to it at the end of the podcast. So what do you think? This probably isn't the image of heaven you had in mind when you read the title of today's episode. But like all of the Divine Comedy, the images try to get to the fundamental idea of heaven. In the next episode, we'll talk about the fundamental reality. It is a reality, in a way, and in a way not of hell. So in 1948 Sayers went to visit a friend in Cambridge and there she gave a lecture to the Society of Italian Studies entitled The Meaning of Heaven and Hell. Everything I'm about to tell you today is taken from this lecture which has been reprinted in the introductory papers on Dante volume one from WIPF and stock publishers. WIPF that's W-I-P-F. I never knew how to pronounce that until I got ready for this podcast. Okay, if you want to hear the story about how Sayers became entranced with Dante in the first place, and it's a cool story, and why Dante is so worthy of her and our attention, go back and listen to episode 11 of season 1. So what Sayers says in 1948 wasn't new theology, of course. She points that out in her opening words. She's not interested in new theology. Heaven and hell theology go way back into the medieval era, into the ancient era, to the New Testament, possibly beyond. Now, you also notice that the volume is called Introductory Papers on Dante. So this is Sayers helping us understand Dante, who is helping us understand Christian teaching, which, ostensibly, is helping us understand ultimate reality. So I want to pause here and talk about the structure of the universe. I can't figure out a good place in this talk to put this, so I'm just going to slap it here. So for the ancients and medievals, the structure of the universe was geocentric, earth-centric. So this is not a compliment necessarily. In the medieval perspective, hell was at the center of the earth. And that's not where you want to be. You want to be beyond. You want to be in the stars. You don't want to be stuck at the bottom of the funnel. And that's how Dante and his colleagues were viewing the universe until, you know, Galileo and beyond when we changed to the heliocentric point of view. So imagine the earth is at the center. And then we kind of go out into spheres of planets. So planets rotate around us. In fact, the word planet means wanderer. They rotate around the Earth. According to people who look at the night sky, this is what they tend to see. It really does make sense until you kind of take some other factors into it. We would all be geocentrics, by the way, if we all just had to work on our own observation. Okay, let me get back from the digression to my other digression. You're on the Earth. You look up. You're looking through crystal spheres basically clear spheres i want you to imagine like the this earth is in the center and then there are these nesting spheres and each one of these kind of transparent invisible spheres is where a planet makes its path its orbit so there's a sphere for mars sphere for mercury spheres venus and so on and so forth until you get past the planets into the firmament which is the realm of the fixed firm stars And then you get to the firmament, and then you move beyond the firmament into the Empyrean, which is where God dwells, where the highest intellect is. So when Dante is writing his paradise, he is making this journey, not to the center of the earth, nowhere on earth. He's leaving earth to go up through the paths of the planets, through the stars. So to understand reality, we must begin with heaven. Or as Sayer says, our explanation must begin with heaven because heaven, or rather God in heaven, is the only unconditioned reality. All other reality is derived from God, being either immediately created by him, or engendered, or evolved, or manufactured by the mediation of his creatures. In other words, God is the ultimate reality from which all other realities come. And if you just signed off because I got too philosophical, I'm talking to my father and others here, Sign back in just for a little bit. You don't have to think it's worthwhile to think about, but if you, well, I don't know what you have to think, but this is just, this is some fundamentals that you should understand because it's a really great way of understanding heaven. It's what Dante taught. This is what medieval thinkers called scholastics or schoolmen taught. As Sayers points out, God who, from whom all reality comes from, from whom all reality comes from, God who creates all reality, creates abundantly. He creates lavishly, not because he needed anything, but because he wanted to share. Creation is good, and creation is numerous. The Christian heaven, Sayers says, is a populous place. She actually inserts here a neat little commentary on closeness to God and angels. So kind of in the keeping, this this doesn't have a really good structure, this podcast episode. It probably should, since Dante's heaven is super structured. But we have... A lot of people in heaven. We have a lot of souls in heaven. We have a lot of angels in heaven. And I want to talk to you about angels just for a second, because I think the medieval view of angels is worth remembering. Okay, this is from page 48 of my little edition of the meaning of heaven and hell. The higher the created being is, and the nearer to God, the more utterly it is itself, and the more it differs from its fellow creatures. The lowest and least of created things, the prime matter, is formless and homogeneous, And inorganic matter has very little individuality. Plants have much more, animals are real individuals, and a human being is more than that. He is a person. But When we come to the angels, or intelligences, as Dante and Dante's phrase, they are thought of as possessing such super personalities that the schoolmen refuse to think of them as being merely so many members of a species. They said that every angel was a separate species all to himself. This may seem to us rather a quaint, if not absurd way of putting it, but the intention is clear. An angel is so triumphantly and perfectly himself that one of these blessed beings differs from one another, not as one man from one another, but as a class of terrestrial beings from one another. Remembering the four beasts of the apocalypse, we may even say that they differ as a man from an ox or an eagle from a lion. However curious this scholastic language may appear, We may, at any rate, find it a useful corrective to the impression we are apt to carry away from the pictures of many medieval and modern artists, which show row upon row of angels, all with the same wings, feather for feather, the same white nightgown, the same hairdo, and the same expressionless face. It's worth noting here how Dante and his era. Now, Dante wrote in the 1300s, but let's go ahead and include the 1100s and the 1200s, how high a view all of these people had of angels. They are more than just messengers and errand boys. They are not like us. They are higher intelligences. And they are so unique that each one is possibly his own species or its own species. Okay, back to heaven. What is heaven? Sayers asked us to forget all the imagery we can, imagery we can for a moment, even Dante's, and especially any modern paintings of angels, celestial banquets, etc. We will come back to the imagery, but for now, think of heaven as a possibility, as a new way of thinking. And the definition of the schoolmen, scholastics, guys like Thomas Aquinas, Heaven is a scene of God in his essence. So, heaven just got a lot more boring, didn't it? It's all of a sudden now like an abstract construct. But think about the limitations of life for a moment. We see things with our eyes, touch them with our fingertips. They are known to us by sense, or as a philosopher may put it, especially if that philosopher was Aristotle or one of his numerous fans, things are known to us not in their essence, but by their effects. In my own words, we know of something that is a car because it has four wheels, at least one door in front, back, windows, engines, etc. In fact, most of us, the first thing we perceive about a car is its color, its shininess, and whether it's moving. We know most everything by our senses. Cars, chairs, our friends, our cats. In fact, things get a little complicated when we try to know one another, another mind by its effects. We can read body language poorly. And even if that other creature is speaking to us, we may not hear what it says accurately. I want to go back to Sarah's own words. She's talking here about how we can perceive. So remember, heaven is the scene of God in his essence. And she's talking about seeing and trying to understand our pets and how hard even that is. Okay. When it comes to the mind of some alien species, even our favorite cat or dog, we have to admit ourselves baffled. We try to interpret their behavior, we argue about whether they can distinguish colors and how far they are capable of reasoning, and we very often transfer to them the kind of feelings we have ourselves. But what it really feels like to be a cat, how the world really looks to a dog, and above all, what the values of the animal creation are, these are enigmas. And the more earnestly we gaze into those strange furry faces, so familiar, so uninhibited and open, and yet so curiously secretive, the more we are aware of their their remoteness and otherness. Only God, who made all things, knows them, and us, and all his myriad creatures from the inside, knows them in their essence, and as they are. And those are just animals. God knows his entire creation, and we don't really know any of it in its essence, at least any of it that has its mind. What if we could read the mind of another human being? And not just read it, but maybe understand how it works, if our own minds are able to keep up. I mean, then we would know. But there are some problems. I might be able to read the mind of Dante himself. But as I said, reading and keeping up are two different things. So these are the limitations we have on this earth. We have to know things by their senses. We can't know them completely. But heaven is perfect comprehension. As Dante describes it on his visit there, he doesn't actually need to ask questions. The souls with whom he speaks comprehending him in his essence, know exactly what he's going to say. But sometimes they actually let him speak just because they like the sound of his voice. Let's go back to the, my mind can't keep up with Dante's motif. That doesn't sound quite fair that Dante could have a better mind than me. But heaven is about justice, not equality. And you probably noticed that heaven is a hierarchy. There are lower spheres and higher spheres. The medievals were much more okay with hierarchy than we are. And it could be argued that 1940s English people were, too. They all accepted the proposition that there are better Christians and worse Christians. In fact, this is what Sayers says. Now, this is on page 48. I think I said the whole pet thing was on page 51. I'm sorry, it's not 48. It's on 57, what I'm about to read to you. It's kind of a long quote. Bear with me. But it's Sayers, so it's worth reading. First of all, we cannot but be sharply struck by the fact that two of our favorite catchwords have absolutely no meaning in heaven. There is no equality and there is no progress. Perhaps I should modify that a little. There is equality in the sense that all the souls alike are as full of bliss as they are capable of being. But between soul and soul, there is no formal equality at all. The pint pot and the quart pot are equally full. But there is no pretense that a pint and a quart are the same thing. Neither does a pint pot ever dream of saying to the quart pot, I'm as good as you are. Still less of saying, it isn't fair that you should hold more than I. The old sin of envy, which unleashed the she-wolf of avarice from hell, is utterly extinguished in heaven. And there is no progress at all in the sense of bettering oneself or getting even with other people. Dante, in the lowest heaven, the heaven of the moon, specially asked Picarda about this. Do you long to go higher to gain more knowledge or win for yourselves more love? She laughs, and all the blessed laugh with her. And she replies in the famous lines, Brother, our desires are stilled by love. We want only what we have to want more would be discordant with the will of him who disposes us here. And in these circles, there is no room for that for here. Our being is in charity and cannot be otherwise. So that our being thus from threshold unto threshold is a joy to all the realm as to the King who draws our wills to what he wills and his will is our peace. Now remember that Picarda is in the lowest sphere of heaven because though she has become perfect, she actually broke a vow, but she was forced out of the convent, you say? Yes, but I'm going to read Beatrice's response when Dante asks about this situation. By the way, that's one of the things that is really great about Dante. He asks the questions that we would ask elsewhere. I think it was in an Inferno. He says, "So what? How can people be in hell if they hadn't even had the chance to hear about the gospel?" And he actually puts a couple of people out, outside of Jesus's time frame in paradise. Like he kind he, it's just fascinating. You should read him. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah, I was going to give you Beatrice's response. So Dante says, look, this isn't fair. She was forced out of the convent. And Beatrice's guide says this. If violence means that the one who suffers has not abetted force in any way, then there is no excuse these souls can claim. For will, if it resists, is never spent. But acts as nature acts when fire ascends, though force a thousand times tries to compel. So that when will has yielded much or little, it has abetted force, as these souls did. They could have fled back to their holy shelter. Yikes! That's who's the strong words from Beatrice. And by the way, those are not—that's not, not Sayers' translations. That's Mandelbaum's. I feel bad using Mandelbaum's translation here on a Sayers podcast, but this rendering is pretty clear. So she says this, and that kind of touches on another point that Dante loves to talk about, which is free will and the power of will. We're not going to go into that yet. But Mandelbaum does explain what I just read about Beatrice's response. Just for clarification, he says that that merit for Picarda has diminished because the human will has the absolute power to resist force, however great. Indeed, this is his very nature, as it is fire's nature to rise upwards. Okay, that's that's some thoughts on the will. All of this is a little off topic, but you kind of have to discuss it when you discuss Picarda. And Picarda is such a wonderful entrance to heaven because she accepts God's will even though it doesn't put her at the top of the ladder. She accepts his reality. So just to review, some of the aspects of heaven that Sayers talks about using Dante is, it's the ultimate reality. By the way, if you read C.S. Lewis's A Great Divorce, that's also a great, very image-oriented depiction of heaven as the ultimate reality. Heaven is the ultimate reality. There's moving up through the stars. There's movement in heaven. There's population in heaven. We didn't get into this, but there's color in heaven. There's sound and song in heaven. There's cool stars. There were souls kind of forming like stars into these formations. Sayers doesn't get into all of this in her essay, but she does kind of get us into the mindset of what heaven is. And that is the acceptance of reality. Specifically, the goodness of reality. One should call good things good. On the other hand, to call good things evil is evil. And that would take us away from Picarda, away from heaven, and into hell into the next episode. I hope Sayers has given you some different, hopefully good ways to think about heaven. Thank you for joining me and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at lindsayanshoel at gmail.com or leave a comment on the YouTube edition of this episode. Have a great day and peace be with you.